Numbers 28. Holy Father, before we read, we ask that your spirit bless not only the study, but the reading of your word this morning. And give us ears to hear what this is about. In Jesus' name, amen. Numbers 28, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be careful to present my offering, my food for my offerings by fire of a soothing aroma to me at their appointed time. You shall say to them, This is the offering by fire which you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs, one year old, without defect, as a continual burnt offering every day. You shall offer one lamb in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight or between the evenings. Also a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with a fourth of a hin of beaten oil. It is a continual burnt offering which was ordained at Mount Sinai as a soothing aroma, an offering by fire to the Lord. And then the drink offering with it shall be a fourth of a hin for each lamb. In the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, as the grain offering of the morning, and as its drink offering, you shall offer it, an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. Then on the Sabbath day, two male lambs, one year old, without defect, two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering and its drink offering. This is the burnt offering of every Shabbat in addition to the continual burnt offering and its drink offering. Then at the beginning of each of your months, you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord, two bulls, one ram, seven male lambs, one year old without defect, and three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering for each bull, and two-tenths of flour mixed with oil for a grain offering for one ram. And a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering for each lamb for a burnt offering of soothing aroma and offering by fire to the Lord. Their drink offering shall be half a hen of wine for a bull and a third a hen of, for the ram and a fourth of a hen for a lamb. This is the burnt offering of each month throughout the months of the year. And one male goat for a sin offering to the Lord. It shall be offered with its drink offering in addition to the continual burnt offering. Verse 16. Then on the 14th day of the first month shall be the Lord's Passover. On the 15th day of this month shall be a feast of unleavened bread. It shall be eaten for seven days. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. You shall present an offering by fire, a burnt offering to the Lord, two bulls, one ram, seven male lambs, one year old, having them without defect. For their grain offering, you shall offer fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for a bull and two-tenths for a ram. A tenth of an ephah you shall offer for each of the seven lambs and one male goat for a sin offering to make atonement for you. You shall present these besides the burnt offering of the morning, which is for a continual burnt offering. After this manner, you shall present daily for seven days the food of the offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. It shall be presented with its drink offering in addition to the continual burnt offering. On the seventh day, you shall offer or have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. Also on the day of first fruits. And when you present a new grain offering to the Lord in your feast of weeks, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. You shall offer a burnt offering for a soothing aroma to the Lord. Two young bulls, one ram, seven male lambs, one year old, and their grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each bull, two-tenths for one ram, one-tenth for each of the seven lambs. And also a male goat to make atonement for you. Besides the continual burnt offering and its grain offering, you pr shall present them with their drink offerings. They shall be without defect. 
Now in the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall also have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. It will be to you a day for blowing trumpets. You shall offer a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to the Lord. One bull, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old without defect. Also their grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the ram, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs. And I hope you're getting this down. Verse 5, one male goat for a sin offering to make atonement for you, besides the burnt offering of the new moon and its grain offering and the continual burnt offering and its grain offering and their drink offerings according to their ordinance for a soothing aroma, an offering by fire to the Lord. On the tenth day of this seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall humble yourselves. You shall not do any work. You shall present a burnt offering to the Lord as a soothing aroma. One bull, one ram, seven male lambs a year old, having them without defect. And their grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil. Three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for one ram, a tenth for each of the seventh, seven lambs. One male goat for a sin offering, besides the sin offering of atonement, and the continual burnt offering, and its grain offering, and their drink offerings. Then, on the 15th of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work, and you shall observe a feast to the Lord for seven days. You shall present a burnt offering, an offering by fire, as a soothing aroma to the Lord. Thirteen bulls, two rams, fourteen male lambs, one year old, which are without defect, and their grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each of the thirteen bulls, two-tenths for each of the two rams, a tenth for each one of the fourteen lambs, and one male goat for a sin offering, besides the continual burnt offering, and its grain offering, and its drink offering. Verse 17, then on the second day, twelve bulls, two rams, fourteen male lambs, a year old without defect, their grain offering, their drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, for the lambs, by their number according to their ordinance, one male goat for a sin offering, besides the continual burnt offering and its grain offering and their drink offerings. Then on the third day, 11 bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs, one year old without defect, their grain offering, their drink offerings for the bulls, the rams, the lambs, by the number according to the ordinance, and one male goat for a sin offering, besides the continual burnt offering and its grain offering and its drink offering. Then on the fourth day, 10 bulls, Two rams, 14 male lambs, a year old without defect, their grain offering, their drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, for the lambs, by their number according to the ordinance. One male goat for a sin offering besides the continual burnt offering and its grain offering and its drink offering. Then on the fifth day, nine bulls. Two rams, 14 male lambs, one year old without defect, their grain offering, the drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, for the lambs, by their number according to their ordinance, one male goat for a sin offering, besides a continual burnt offering and its grain offering and its drink offering. Then on the sixth day, Eight bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs, one year old without defect, their grain offering, their drink offering for the bulls, for the rams, for the lambs, by the number according to their inheritance, one male goat for a sin offering, besides the continual burnt offerings and its grain offerings and its drink offerings. Then on the seventh day, seven bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs, one year old without defect, and their grain offering and their drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, for the lambs, by the number according to their ordinance, and one male goat for a sin offering besides the continual burnt offerings and its grain offering and its drink offering. By the way, that's 70 bulls in that week. Verse 35, on the eighth day, you shall have a solemn assembly. You shall do no laborious work, but you shall present a burnt offering, an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord. One bull, one ram, seven male lambs, one year old without defect. Their grain offering, their drink offerings for the bull, for the ram, and for the lambs by their number according to their ordinance. And one male goat for a sin offering. Besides the continual burnt offerings and its grain offerings and its drink offering. You shall present these to the Lord at your appointed times. 
besides your votive offerings and your free will offerings and your burnt offerings and for your grain offerings and for your drink offerings and for your peace offerings. Moses spoke to the sons of Israel in accordance with all that the Lord had commanded Moses. <laughs> the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. I read through that. I read over it several times. I thought, do I really want to go through the whole thing? Some of you have asked me, do you really feel the need to read every single word of Scripture all the way through? And I remind you that the law of the Lord is perfect. And we honor that. But I read through that for a reason this morning. We took our time to sit there in that place on purpose. Last couple of weeks, we've heard some shocking things not in the news, in the Bible, about the next generation of Israel, that generation raised in the wilderness. We have studied and seen some, some things that you have to pause and think, how and why and, and what's the purpose of all this? These are a people at the end of their journey. And you need to get that because we've been in the wilderness, Bamidbar, the book of Numbers, in the wilderness, but now they are out of the wilderness and yet they lose heart, they lose faith, they lose their moral compass and they gave in to the sin nature, the same sin nature that afflicts you and me today. We watch them and we learn from them 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, I will read to you again. These things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things even as they craved. Now these things happened, verse 11, to them as an example. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. I think one of the best possible Bible studies for a follower of Jesus here at the end of the age is Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then continuing on into Joshua. That we read, we study, we, we get these things because they were written for us, not just across the church age, but here and now at the end of the age. It's not just about Israel coming out of the wilderness and stumbling into the promised land. This is about the last day's church. This is a word for the last day's church coming out of our wilderness. And the question is, will we walk or will we stumble? into the promised kingdom. Here in these two chapters, chapters 28 and 29, the Lord, and I think the timing is perfect, pauses to restate a vital value for the people of Israel. Something their forefathers, something the previous generation had heard at Mount Sinai, clarified, explained explicitly. In fact, even as we're reading through Numbers 28 and 29, many of you are going, we know about this. We've heard about this sometime recently, I think. Well, it's been 40 years for them. And these children, now adults, now grown up, now this next generation are being told this same thing. And God is reiterating this, and here is the value, sacrifice in the life of Israel. The value of sacrifice in the life of Israel. Following their recent sins and failures, this is well-timed. God, in essence, is saying to his people, you've got to bring the blood. You've got to bring the blood. And it was a lot of blood. With every animal we read, with everyone, blood. How many pints of blood in a bull, do you know? How many pints of blood in a lamb or a ram? Can you for a moment pause and, and try to imagine all the blood? 
Now, you animal rights lovers <laughs> might have a little trouble with this. How about this? Let's, let's do a graphic. What if I were to bring a sweet little lamb up here on a Sunday morning and hold it, and you'd all go, oh, picture of the good shepherd. Oh, look at that, sweet little lamb. And I drew out a knife, and I slit its throat. And then in front of you all, let its blood drain out of its body into a basin. And then what if I took that basin and I poured it into four more basins and put one on each table for communion so that when you went to take communion, you would see the blood of the lamb. You would look over and find the lifeless body of that lamb lying on the stage. It's graphic. It's even offensive. How would that affect your communion meditation this morning? <laughs> Bowls of blood. And the Israelites participated personally in all of this. They brought these sacrifices. They, they held the little lambs. They heard the bleating sheep. They saw the pouring blood. They smelled the burning meat and the thick smoke. They even tasted of the sacrifices. The priests mostly, but the peace offerings, the offerer came and, and shared in that burnt meat. Daily offerings. Think about this. Every day, morning and evening. Every week on Shabbat. Monthly offerings, by the way, in addition to the daily and weekly. So if they fell on the same day, it didn't matter. You did everything that was required. Uh, monthly offerings, annual offerings, the seven feasts and observances. So on a feast day, while you're offering the offerings for the feast, you're still doing the morning and the evening offering. If it happens to be on Shabbat, you're still doing the morning and evening and Shabbat offering. If it happens to be on the first of the month, you're still doing morning, evening, Shabbat, feast, and the first day of the month offerings. It was constant in the life of Israel. And I don't know that we can, can truly comprehend the intensity of that. I mean, these weren't sacrifices of having to get up early to make it for morning devotion. These were not the sacrifices of having to, man, I had to grab a bite to eat and race over to the church after work for a midweek service. Oh, it was such a hard week to get there, but I did it. Well done. <laughs> It's not the sacrifice of time and energy for service projects or short-term missions or conferences or retreats. It's not the sacrifice of fiscal tithes and offerings, although the expense of all these animals was huge. Not just the blood, the very cost of the animals themselves. Every year, the priest sacrificed 1,086 lambs, 113 bulls, 32 rams, more than a ton of flour, over a thousand bottles of oil and wine. And in addition to this, the people were encouraged to bring their vow, their free will, their household, and their peace offerings. There's record in the time of Christ of more than 255,600 lambs being offered during a single Passover. This was constant in Israel, this was lifestyle. So when the apostle Paul, a Jewish evangelist himself, wrote Romans 12:1, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, your spiritual service of worship. I read that, and after reading Numbers 28 and 29, I say, sacrifice? Most of us can hardly relate. Why so much blood? Why so much blood, Lord? A couple of reasons. Number one, it helps us to recognize the absolute corruption of sin. 
You think the blood was over the top? Their sin was over the top. The sin of humanity is over the top. It's constant. It's like a flow of blood. It, it's a never-ending thing. Listen to the Bible's point-counterpoint on this. Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Counterpoint. Psalm 130, verse 4. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And verse 24 says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. 1 John 1 verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Liar. See, if you say you're, you have no sin, you've just sinned <laughs> because you've just told a lie. And that's the reality. The truth is not in us. But 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But, but take it further. The sacrifices of Israel, these sacrifices were visceral and they were vicarious. They were vicarious. That is, they stood in place of. By the way, this is a term that some apply to the church. And I get the term, I understand the term, I don't think it goes far enough, but maybe you've heard the phrase vicarious atonement. Vicarious atonement, which translates theologically a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. So in Israel's case, the blood of animals in the place of the blood of human beings as payment for sin. In the place of the church, Jesus substituted in my place for my sins. But the problem with Vicarious atonement, it, it doesn't go far enough. God established this standard for Israel, right? He established the standard of the blood for the sin. And I think I told you recently, maybe last week, that he created us with blood flowing through our bodies as an absolute so that we would understand the seriousness of sin, of blood for sin. Leviticus 17, 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. But again, vicarious atonement is not enough. It's not enough. What do you mean, Rick? Chapters 28 and 29 are not enough. It was never enough. Because all the blood of all the animals, not just in a year in the life of Israel, but across the entire lifespan. If you go 1,500 years, think about the amount of blood that was poured out and spilled. I actually tried to start making calculations and I got too sickened. Too much blood. And it's never enough because the blood of these animals could only atone. They could only cover for a time. They could only hold back the wrath of God. The sin was still there under the blood. The sin was still present, though, though the blood would appease for a time, hold off for a time the corruption of sin, but it couldn't cleanse. And that's what we come to, the second thing, the cleansing of sin. Why all this sacrifice, all these animals? It's to bring us to the understanding of the corruption of sin, but then to grasp, if we might, the cleansing of sin. Evangelist Rolf Bernard said, be wrong on anything else, but be right on this. Which, by the way, that quote is why I'm taking time on this right at the front. 
Be right on this. So let's get this right. Sin, your sin, my sin, is an infinite offense against God. We think in terms of limitation. Oh, I sinned. I'll get over that. It's not a big deal. I'll say my, you know, I'll say my Hail Marys or whatever. I'll get it done. It's just my sin. That was just a sin yesterday. We don't realize when you sin against an infinite being, the sin becomes infinite. It's eternal. And our sin is an infinite offense against God, which is why only a perfect, infinite being, God himself, in Christ Jesus, could satisfy the penalty. Nothing else could do it. You can't do it. I can't do it. The blood of all these animals couldn't do it. All of us like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah 53, verse 6. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, the infinite, perfect Jesus. Matthew 1, tells us, she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Can we get that down? He will save us from our sins. Stop asking me if you're saved if you believe in Jesus. He will save you from your sin. You will not. I will not. Oh, but I've had a bad, bad week. He will save you from your sin. That's too simple. He will save you from your sin. But you don't know what I've done. He will save you from your sin. Jesus Christ is more than vicarious atonement. He is more than just stepping in to cover you. You know, you won't even find the word atonement in the New Testament. Now, if you're reading in the King James translation, you'll find it once, but it's a mistranslation. It's Romans chapter 5, verse 11, where in the King James it reads, we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we now have received the atonement. Well, that's great, but if you know what atonement means, it means covering, it's not enough. It's not enough, which is why a lot of religions, even within Christianity, try to add on the what you must do. The additional things. The word atonement in Romans 5.11, mistranslated in the King James Version, is katalagain. And katalagain means reconciliation. By Jesus we have received the reconciliation. And there's only one way to receive reconciliation with a perfect, infinite God. You know what that is? You have to be perfect. You have to be absolutely clean, which is why in the New Testament, while we don't see words like atonement, we see expiation. We see propitiation. We see cleansing. Because the blood of Jesus does more than vicariously atone for or cover over our sins. It cleanses us completely. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 the Hebrew pastor says, according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in heaven to be cleansed with these. The copies, Ark of the Covenant, table of showbread, altar of incense, the lampstand, the altar, the, the bronze labor. These are copies of heavenly things. The Bible tells us. The, there are heaven rea heavenly realities, a holy place, a holy of holies, the inner court. The tabernacle itself is a copy. It's not the real thing. It was never the real thing. 
It's a copy of the heavenly. And these things, so they need to be cleansed. There need to be blood, blood of animals. But with the heavenly things themselves, we need better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that's not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once, once, get this down, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And that one manifestation was 2,000 years ago on the cross. And none else is necessary. Nothing else is required. The one sacrifice paid it all. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without sin to those who eagerly await him. Revelation chapter 12 verse 11 says they overcame the devil because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony because they did not love their life even when faced with death sacrifice sacrifice the corruption of sin all the cleansing that only Jesus brings but there's something going on in this chapter in these two chapters again the reason I read it all the way through that we must not miss. And that is in all of these things, the centrality of God. The centrality of God. What do you mean? Yahweh clearly desires, as evidenced by the law, clearly desires to be the center of Israelite life. Not just an occasion. Not just Sunday to Sunday or Sunday to Wednesday to Sunday. Not just Christmas and Easter. Not just when you think about it. Not just monthly attendance. Yahweh set up the law so that every moment of every day there would be the reminder for the people of Israel that he would be central. Morning to evening to week to month to year with multiple overlaps, God calls Israel to gather around him. And not because he needed it. That'd be pathetic, honestly. Oh, he so needs us to worship him. He doesn't need you to worship him. He, you need you to worship him. He doesn't need me to follow him. I need to follow him. He has set the whole thing up. Even our worship, do you understand that? That when we worship God, it's not to make him happy. I know it does please the Lord. It is even, our worship is described as a sacrifice to the Lord but we need to worship. We need him central. We need to gather around him. And so he created this whole system for the Israelites, his chosen people, so that they would develop a lifestyle centered on Yahweh, a God-centered life. When it closed out, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band the song A Day in the Life was hailed as Lennon McCartney's masterpiece. Actually, most said it's Lennon's masterpiece, but Paul McCartney came along and he inserted the bridge section, which I think makes the whole song. It brings out 
what Lennon is saying in the verses, McCartney adds for the bridge, here it is, woke up, fell out of, fell out of bed. Dragged a comb across my head. Found my way downstairs and drank a cup and looking up I noticed I was late. Found my coat and grabbed my hat. Made the bus in seconds flat. Found my way upstairs and had a smoke and somebody spoke and I went into a dream. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Goes on back into the song and the cacophony of it and then back into the lyrics. And this, this masterpiece, understand, was all about the mundane. The song described Day to day, a day in the life. It's about holes in the streets of Blackburn, Lincolnshire. It's seats in the Royal Albert Hall. Who cares who's numbering those? And it's about the monotony of existence and a man who blew his mind out in a car. Which, by the way, wasn't about suicide. It was about getting stoned. He got stoned in a car and people gathered around and stared. Why? Because he was so bored with a day in the life so sick and tired of the monotony of it all. And you know what? That, that's this life without Jesus. That is this life without meaning, without purpose. Why are people still burning buildings in the streets? Why are there still riots? Why is all this going on? Because people are clamoring and desiring to find some kind of meaning or purpose to their existence. And if I can go riot somewhere, maybe I can feel like I'm doing something to make change. And it's pathetic. It's sad to me because the kind of change that people think they're going to make, they're not going to make. Who was I talking to about this last week? Just the whole idea that there are actually people in this generation who think socialism has never worked because we didn't do it. We can make it work. <laughs> There's a name for someone who thinks that way. Imbecile. <laughs> Moron. History teaches us nothing and we keep thinking we can get on this issue, we can tackle that agenda, we can handle this problem and this generation is going to make it work. Why? Corruption of sin. The corruption of sin and the need for the cleansing and the one thing that is missed is the centrality of Christ in a life. And your life will go spinning along and start to get monotonous and boring and dull and meaningless and vapid until you recenter on Jesus. And then, then, you have an eternal purpose. Then the significance and meaning begins to come back in to your life. Can you say this morning, being honest with yourself, you don't have to tell me, but being honest with yourself, can you say unequivocally that Jesus Christ is central in your life? Amen. What was to be offered every morning? Every morning and every evening of every day throughout the year, what were they to offer? Look back at verse four. You shall offer the one lamb in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Every morning, every evening, offer a lamb. Do you focus on the lamb that often? Morning to evening? John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The lamb, the lamb, every day, twice a day. Now, that doesn't mean that the lamb has to be sacrificed morning and evening over and over and over and over and over and over again. That is the Catholic Mass, by the way. If you have a Catholic background, then you understand 
the Catholic Mass, what that is about is a re-sacrificing every time the host, the bread, every time the host is taken and the wine is drunk, it is transubstantiation. The bread becomes the flesh of Jesus going down your throat and the juice or the wine becomes his blood going down your throat and he is sacrificed again and again and again and at any given point around the entire globe it is believed the mass needs to happen so that the sacrifice is perpetual the sacrifice of Jesus where in the world did that idea come from I'll let the Hebrew pastor tell you verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 10 by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus how many times once for all. The Catholic doctrine of the mass, my friends, is based on the Old Testament law. The perpetual, continual sacrifice of the animals. And that was taken out and, and said, well, let's, then Jesus has to be sacrificed that often. They missed the book of Hebrews. You read what the Bible says. That every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Psalm 110 verse 1. Waiting from that time on where when his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time. The word for all time there is continually those who are being sanctified. One offering is all it took because he's perfect and he's infinite. So he's not offered over and over and over and over and over again. One time. And that's it. But do you recognize that? See, here's the point. It's not that the lamb now is sacrificed morning and evening. It's that when we sin, we don't bring a lamb to the altar. We come to the lamb. We come to the lamb. And it's not a twice daily offering. Oh, it's a great way to start and it's a great way to end the day. It is an all day long thing that Jesus offers himself to you in relationship. Offers his presence to you. Offers to be there at any moment throughout the day even when we are completely unaware. He's with you until the very end of the age, he said. Practically speaking, this daily sacrifice, the, the morning and evening, the morning and twilight offerings, they, they speak of my relationship with Jesus. Daily relationship, every day with Jesus. Oh, listen to this. I love this psalm. Psalm 57, verse 7, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens, your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. How many of you wake up that way every morning? And how many of you did wake up that way would have the rest of the household going, shut up! <laughs> Trying to sleep here? Oh, it's Mr. Joy in the morning. And yet the psalmist cries out, I will awaken the dawn. John Milton rephrased that, I will cheerily rouse the slumbering morn. <laughs> I encourage you this week, try this. Every morning, right before dawn, because he's going to awaken the dawn, right? 
go out on your front lawn and just shout, praise the Lord! <laughs> Hallelujah! Just read Psalm 57. My heart is steadfast, oh God! And watch the neighbors. <laughs> Boy, some of you might hear this and go, I will awaken the dawn. Bro, I hit the ground running in the morning just to get to work. I got my coffee, I got my stuff. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm Paul McCartney's dude. Grabbing the cup, running the comb, getting out the door. I'm on the run, don't you understand that? When David wrote that, he was on the run too. He was on the run from Saul. His life threatened every morning. And yet his attitude, I will awaken the dawn. I will sing praises to my God. It's an up before the morning kind of a psalm. Psalm 119, 148 says on the other end of things, I will anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on your word. Having trouble sleeping? Hannah, you didn't sleep at all last night, right? How were the night watches? <laughs> Not great. Maybe God's calling. Maybe he's saying, how about you meditate on the word for a few minutes? I anticipate the night watches, David says. I'm up before the dawn, David says. I'm like, when are you getting sleep? He's like, I don't have to because I'm praising God. <laughs> Psalm 48 verse, or 42 verse 8, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. Lifestyle Christianity lifestyle following, a lifestyle relationship that begins when you awaken and it ends just as you begin to drift off when your head hits the pillow morning to evening. That's my daily relationship with Jesus. Look at verse 9. Then on the Sabbath day, two male lambs, one year old without defect and two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oils, a grain offering and its drink offering. So every Sabbath day, every day, morning and evening, and then Sabbath comes along once a week, once a week. Jesus, number two, if you're noting this, he's my relationship every day. He's my weekly rest. He is my weekly rest. Did you know that the New Testament repeats in command form every single one of the Ten Commandments for us as Christians? People say, I don't have to keep the Ten Commandments, do I? I'm under grace. Well, they're all repeated in the New Testament to follow. Every single one of them, with one exception. You are never commanded in the New Testament to keep the Sabbath. Well, wait a minute. No, that can't be right. Look it up. Study it out. You're never commanded to keep the Sabbath. Why not? Jesus is the Sabbath. Amen. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden. I will give you rest. He is the rest and we do life better. Get this about the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day is no longer about morality. It's not even included in the New Testament as part of the moral code of the Hebrew Scriptures where it was part of the moral code for the Jew. Going through the, the, the weekly life, they were to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, and there were laws about the Sabbath, and those laws, by the way, have been taken and run with. 39 different categories of what you may and may not do on the Sabbath. You can read about that if you'd like to in Jewish law today. With Talmud, going way beyond what the law says, but still, it was prescribed and specific what they could and could not do on Shabbat under the Mosaic law. We're not under that. 
So it's no longer an issue of morality. Sabbath for you and me is about functionality. Because we do life better when we rest in the Lord every week. Dedicated time where we just relax in him. Where we just focus on him. The church, we meet on Sundays, right? Seventh-day Adventists will come along and say, no, you have to do it on Saturday. Well, I'll make sure and get there. You know, I, I say, why not just worship every day and you don't have to worry about it? <laughs> but when you come, understand one of the reasons that you come and you, you listen to teaching, the law of the Lord is perfect, right? Think about all that hearing the word of God does to you. It is a moment, even now, even this morning, where you're resting in him, where everything else stops. That's why I am such a big fan of Wednesday nights as well because halfway through the week you crack the code again and you stop and you recognize Jesus and you rest in him. Jesus is my rest. And God said back in Psalm 46.10, cease striving. Know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in all the earth. We translate that be still, but it's more than being still. It's cease striving. Stop stressing. The last day's church, my opinion, seems to lack the power of the first century church. And I think one of the root causes of this weakness is that we are striving right along with the world. We are not taking our rest in the Lord. We're not consistently resting in Jesus. Do you know in Israel, even today, and it's funny because most of Israel is secular right now. It's a smaller percentage that is actually religious among the Jewish people. Most are secular. They recognize they're Jewish. They recognize the heritage, but they really don't focus on God. He is certainly not central, and yet Sabbath remains central to Jewish life. The entire week, and you'll note this if you come with us this next time, the entire week works up to Sabbath. Starting on the first day of the week, which for us is Sunday, that's a busy day for Israelis because they got to get as much done as possible as the week begins because as the week rolls on, things start to slow down. Friday morning they get up and it slows down even more. And by about Friday afternoon, the Israelis are chilling, man. They may be out at market getting final preparations for the Sabbath, for the meal that evening, and then it shuts down. Saturday, in my opinion, is the worst day of the tour. The food is cold. The service is unavailable. I'm like, where are these Jewish people? The Sabbath, they, they work down to that day, a day of rest. So people ask, well, should we keep the Sabbath or should we not? It's not a morality issue. It's not a command for Christians it's a functionality issue. Paul said in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a shadow of what is to come. Listen, but the substance belongs to Christ. Amen. The Sabbath day in law was a shadow of the substance of rest, which is Jesus. Jesus is my rest. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, Jesus said, Mark chapter 2, verse 27. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
He's Lord of the Sabbath. Well, if you want to honor the king on the Sabbath, then honor Jesus. Now, if you want to take Saturday and make it a day of rest in the Lord, I'm all for it. If you want that to be Sunday, I applaud that. And as I said a moment ago, if you want to just do that every day, all the better. I said this midweek, I'll say it again, our ability to carry out all that God gives us isn't based on our ability. It's based on knowing Jesus. You want to become more effective as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, spend your time knowing him. The rest will flow. The fruit will will bear. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. So what am I supposed to do? Stay connected to the vine. And he will flow in me and through me to bear fruit. I don't focus. When we focus on the fruit, it wears us out. When we focus on Jesus, we're bearing fruit we don't even know about. Because he is the source and the center. Again, the centerpiece of life. If you want to know how to be more effective in serving Jesus, focus on knowing him. Want to function with peak efficiency as a follower of Jesus Christ? Take your rest in him. Come to me again, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Your soul, which is usually your busy place. Thinking and processing and preparing and laying out schedule. You'll find rest for your soul. Jesus says, come to me. So he's my relationship. He's my rest. Verse 11. Look at verse 11. Then at the beginning of each of your months, you shall present a burnt offering. At the beginning of the month, in Hebrew, that's Rosh Chodesh. At the Rosh Chodesh, what does that mean? Head of the month. At the head of the month. How do you head into the month? As each month rolls into the next, do you find yourself, like me, often saying, I can't believe it's already the seventh of this month? How did we get to the 15th? You know, how, how is it that this morning it's the 13th of June? Where did the first of the month go? And, and you know, it's just rolling and rushing. And, listen, Jesus, number three, is my routine. Don't miss the importance of this. I didn't say he's the mundane. I said he is the routine. Certain relational habits and routines are restful. They encourage and they maintain our relationship with Jesus. Certain disciplines Uh, For example, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And you get a picture, at least in Acts chapter 2, at least at the very beginning, you get a picture of a church that couldn't get enough of each other. Not a church that was saying, I can make it Sundays, but Wednesday's just asking too much. Not a church that's saying, well, I could do Sunday and maybe Wednesday, but they want me to do a small group too. That's just, that's that's out of the question. What is your weekly, your daily, your monthly pattern? If you look at that, you'll get some notion as to how you're following after Jesus is going. I'm just making suggestions here. One of the reasons, again, that our country is spiraling and that the church and Christianity seems weakened is we have abandoned the routine of assembly. I don't say this to make anybody feel guilty, but I gotta be honest with you. There are a whole bunch of you I'm missing on Wednesday nights. And COVID has taken a toll because what COVID has done is caused people to draw back, not because of the virus, but in complacency. 
It's commanded complacency in our lives. Well, I'll get there Sunday now, but man, during the week, it's just too tough. Really? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. The question is not whether or not I'm checking the box of attendance because we don't take attendance at the bridge. In fact, I'll let you in on a little secret. I rarely know who's here. I know Hillary's here this morning because she just laughed at that. I, most, if you ask me two days later, Rick, who was there? I don't know. I talked to Joseph. I think Joseph was there. Pretty sure. Yeah. I, I, I totally space it. That's not the issue. That's never the issue. Did you show up? Did you get your grace points? That's not the point. Is Jesus central? Do you want Jesus to be more central? I, and I have this conversation all the time. I just, I just wish I could be more faithful. Well, how about just showing up Wednesday night? Do you know what we do on Wednesday night? It's real similar to what we do here on Sunday mornings. <laughs> Only we do it a little longer. <laughs> and you know what? It's my favorite time of the week. I'd take Wednesday night over Sunday morning anytime because we are in the word more, we're in worship more. It's just, it's a good, so you're all invited. If you haven't been, or maybe if you're taking a break, or maybe with COVID and everything else, you're kind of being more tentative, come on out. In fact, if you're being tentative because of social distancing, there's room, there's space. And I'm gonna keep on doing this, and we will continue our Wednesday nights. If three people are showing up, the three of us will have a fantastic time. But you're invited. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near, Hebrews 13. This is central to the centrality of Christ in your life. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread. And by the way, we do that every Wednesday as well and prayer. Do you want Jesus to be central? Is Jesus central? I'm just asking the question. That's my job. But I will say this too. When I see the hurt and the struggle and the pain, not to mention the, the moral compromise and the weakness that is so apparent in the church today, it is clear that far too many Christians are just trying to go it on their own because they are too busy. Life is too full. There is too much else going on. And when it's all said and done, do you want to look back over life and go, wow, I got that report in? Or do you want to say, wow, my relationship with Jesus was so sweet? It's your call. Make the spiritual habitual, whether it's morning and evening, every day and every week, and of course, every month month in, month out, and then we come to the annual centrality of God, and I'm going to fly through these, so buckle up. Verse 16 says, then on the 14th day of the first month shall be the Lord's Passover. So in addition to all the other sacrifices, here comes Passover annually, every year, Nisan the 14th. Why? Because Jesus is my redemption. He's my redemption. He, he's my relationship which is marvelous. I find my rest in him, and he is part of my daily routine. I was going to tell you, I was raised, uh, my mom and dad raised me going to church every Sunday morning. We did Sunday school, then we did church, then Sunday night we were back for Sunday evening church, and then Wednesday night, every Wednesday night, every single week, and I hated it every time. We were the family, my dad was an elder in this startup church, and we were the family that when we went away for the weekend, we were back for Sunday morning, and I just bugged me. Guess who's still here every Sunday morning? 
And every Wednesday night, and you might say, well, Rick, yeah, okay. So, ooh, Rick's so holy, Mr. Pastor Guy. You know what? I chose a job that would force me to have a routine that involved Jesus constantly because I'm not as good as a lot of you. I, I am, man, I'm, look, a dime. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very ADD when it comes to life. This centers me. I need this. By the way, I need you. So let's just remember that. So Jesus, he's also my redemption. Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. Don't forget the cost of your redemption. All the blood of all these animals pouring out in waves of blood, not enough. But, 1 Peter 1, 19, the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He is my Passover. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. My redemption. Verse 17. On the 15th day, so the 14th is Passover. On the 15th is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So you've got Pesach, Passover. The very next day begins Hag Hamatzot, Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus is my removal. What do you mean? Unleavened. You remove the leaven. Take the leaven out. Get the sin out. Jesus does that. I don't do that. I'm not capable of doing that. He does that. Removing the sin. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. And that's the goal, to be an unleavened lump. I'm okay with that. Jesus is my removal. He removes the sin. And again, not by my constant hard work and effort of cleaning the house and cleaning off the plates and bringing out the special Feast of Unleavened Bread plates that they do every year and making sure everything's done. And No, 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 no. Jesus cleans out the old sin and sanctifies me. I just keep coming to the Lamb daily, weekly, monthly, annually. And then in verse 26, also on the day of first fruits, reshit, first fruits. That, that is Jesus, my resurrection. Because you Bible students know the Feast of First Fruits happened on Resurrection Day. I love that. When Jesus rose from the grave, that was Rashid. That was first fruits. And the Bible even calls him Christ the first fruits. The first one resurrected from the dead, never to die again. Note this first fruits dealt with the barley harvest, it's the earliest harvest in the springtime. And so on Nisan the 15th, they would bring a sheaf of barley and they would wave that as, a, as a, an offering of first fruits. And it was Resurrection Sunday that that took place. Barley, barley is the poor man's grain. I find that fascinating. The cheapest bread was barley bread made from the cheapest grain, which was the barley grain. It was barley worth anything. <laughs> the barley... You know what you could call the resurrection? Listen to me. The poor man's harvest. Poor man's harvest. We were lost. We were without hope. We were absolutely impoverished in our sin and Jesus rose from the dead. Amen. The poor man's harvest. The first fruits. Peter said in 1 Peter 1 verse 3 that he is our living hope. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Oh Jesus, my first fruits, my resurrection. But then it goes on and says when you present a new grain offering to the Lord in your feast of weeks. So that's the next one. That's the last one 
The last harvest of the spring, these are the spring feasts, Pesach, Hag, Hametzot, Reshit, and now Shavuot, or we call it Pentecost, the wheat harvest in the end of the spring, and I would put it this way, that Jesus is my relationships. I have a relationship with him, like that morning to evening, the day to day, the constancy of relationship, but Jesus is also my relationships. He's the source. He's what brings us together, right? I mean, if we were to take a survey, what is it that draws us all together in this place? We all have different affinities. We all have different lifestyles. We all have different things going on, different focuses, different things that we enjoy. And yet the one constant of this fellowship, Jesus. He's, our, he's the source. He draws us together in relationship. It's not just one-to-one with Jesus in relationship. This is the dynamic of where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am. Relationships. He's the head of my relationships, the church. Have I said enough this morning? We need each other. We need each other. Jesus said, upon this rock, Peter, the rock of faith, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. But how do you build when the building materials are not present? In fact, the gates of Hades sure can seem to overpower us when we're isolated from his people. When we're holed up in our homes, doing it ourselves, doing it alone. Yeah, I'm talking to you people at home this morning. (laughs) You're isolating I understand why, but the reality is it's harder to go it at home. We need each other. And then what happens in this God is central calendar year? Well, what's interesting is you come down to these feasts, the Feast of First Fruits and Feast of Weeks and the first four feasts that happened in the springtime, and then there's a pause. Long, hot summer, you might say. And the next feast that ultimately comes there's a gap of time. I, I think that's fascinating. A gap of time that exists in the feasts, in the feasts during, which, during which I practically need a daily relationship with Jesus. The next feast hasn't come yet. I, I need rest in him. I need a spiritual routine. He's my redemption, the removal of my sin, the, the reminder of my coming resurrection. He is the centerpiece of my relationships in the church. I need all that. And in the long season between the last event, the last feast, Pentecost. It's been a long, hot summer, my friends. Chapter 29, verse 1 says, in the seventh month, this would be Tishri, September, October time frame. You shall also have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. It will be to you a day for blowing trumpets. That's it. That's the entire festival. Toot the horn. Blow the trumpet, man. Hey, Yom Teruah, Jesus, listen, Jesus is my rapture. He is my rapture. Now, the feast itself is picturesque of the rapture of the church, absolutely. I'm not going to get into rapture theology this morning or have the conversation, except just to say it's all over the Bible. And you can study it out, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. We've got Matthew 24, 40 and 41, Luke 21, 36, John 14, verses 1 through 3. You've got Titus 2, 13. You've got the entire book of Revelation, especially Revelation chapter 4. The rapture's everywhere, my friends. Fantastic, yes. Almost incredible, sure. 
but it's there. And it's the next thing on God's calendar. But, but we're talking relationally here. So listen, let me apply it this way. Practically speaking, Jesus catches me up. You know what I'm saying? Jesus is, is my, my rapture. I can be having a bad day and hear the name of Jesus and I'm caught up. I can be sad and lonely and someone speaks Jesus to me and my spirit soars. Jesus is my rapture. In fact, the Bible says very clearly, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. These are not heavenly chairs. But Paul says we're seated. We're already caught up. There's a sense of this rapture of Jesus, of being caught up in Jesus, with Jesus. Colossians 3.1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And when you see that little twinkling in my eye, you'll know I've just been raptured. In the moment, Jesus is my, my rapture. Down in verse 7, then on the 10th day of the 7th month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall humble yourselves. You shall not do any work. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. As God is dealing with a year in the life of the Jewish people, Yom Kippur, Jesus, my repentance. Because Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Remember atonement. They had to do this every year annually to remind them that they are being atoned for every morning and evening and throughout the year. And they would humble themselves and they would repent. They'd have what were called the awesome days between the blowing of the trumpet, Yom Teruah, and the coming of Yom Kippur, 10 days of, of repentance and preparation and, and humbling yourself. Jesus is my repentance. What do you mean? Someone might say, Rick, wait, didn't you repent when you became a Christian? Yeah. And I continue to turn and return to Jesus every day. Every day. I, I don't look at it as repenting like I repented at first where I repented of my sins and I repented of my life and I repented of my rebellion and I turned to Jesus and said, I love you, I want to be with you. Come and be my Lord and Savior. I am in a constant state of repentance. You are in a constant state of repentance every time we turn. To repent is to turn around. And we turn around and we return to Jesus. Here's the beauty of our salvation. Beauty of our salvation is that it allows me to keep turning around. It allows me to continue to turn to him without fear that this time he's going to go, enough, I'm done with you. Every time I fail, every time I fall, every time I sin, I turn around and guess who's there waiting for me? The man with the nail scars in his hands. And I can keep repenting. I'm not saying trampling grace. I'm not talking about just sinning willfully. Oh, whatever, Jesus, I'll turn around when I'm ready. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm saying my recognition of Jesus, my ability to turn to him over and over and over happens because he's already saved me. As John put it, there is no fear in love. I'm not afraid of Jesus. I fear him. You know, I respect, I honor him. But I, I'm not afraid of Jesus because perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. You know what you can do this morning? You can praise God that you're not going to hell. I don't know if any of you follow these. John Corson sends out these little text messages. 
He's so funny. The guy's hilarious. The older he gets, the, the weirder. And in, in a glorious, godly way. But he, he sent out this text message where he was talking about that it was 103 degrees down in, in, the, in um, Jacksonville, Florida. Or Jackson. And, and he, he was saying, you know what I love about days like this? 103 degrees. And I thought he was going to say, I love the heat. I love getting outdoors. He goes, I love days like this because they remind me I'm not going to hell. <laughs> That's the best. You're not. And because you're not, and because you are in the hands of God, and you are beloved by him because of the blood of Christ that cleanses you, when you fail, when you fall, even when you've been distracted, turn around. Turn around. Jesus, he's my repentance. And verse 12, we're almost done. Verse 12, then on the 15th day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. You shall observe a feast to the Lord for seven days. And that is the Feast of Sukkot. We did a whole prophecy update on that recently. The Feast of Sukkot, that big all country, all Israel camp out Sukkot. You know what that reminds me of on this year in the life with God? It reminds me that Jesus is my royalty. He makes me royalty. Because Sukkot, more than any of the other feasts, it's the final, it's the most festive, the most joyful feast of the Hebrew calendar year because it is the only one that declares primarily the kingdom. It's all about the kingdom. As we read and have read so many times in Zechariah 14, verse 9, the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. Won't that be fantastic? No more elections. Right? The Lord will be the only one. And all the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from the Benjamin's gate all the way to the place, the first gate, the corner gate, the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. People will live in it. There will no longer be a curse for Jerusalem will dwell securely. But that's not all. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations, verse 16, that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate Sukkot. It is the kingdom festival. And it reminds me of my royalty in Jesus. And I bring this up again, and I know I brought it up a lot lately, but I gotta say it again, my friends, if you want a life where Jesus is central, remember constantly that the kingdom is the goal. The kingdom is the goal. The kingdom is the goal. That's where we're headed. This life is not the goal. Dealing with my pain now, not the issue. Overcoming now, being a conqueror now, that's not the thing. The kingdom is the goal. That's what I'm being prepared for. Talked to a precious brother this last week who the doctors have told him he has at best two years to live. And he's just trying to come around to Jesus and, and, and wants to trust and follow Jesus and, and having a hard time. And he was saying, even if I do get square, get straight with the Lord, what have I got left that I can do? And I said, how about a thousand years? How about a thousand years? Now, granted, that means more and more to me the older I get, but, but still, 
This life is not the thing. The kingdom is the thing. That's what you're being prepared for. Your profession, your challenges, your heartaches, your successes, all of it is preparing you for the kingdom and for what your role is going to be there. Some of you are going to be governors over 10 cities. Some of us are just going to be, you know, trash men. But that's cool. We'll be in the kingdom. My life is preparation for then. It is not about now. It's about then. And when my eyes are focused on the then, guess what happens to the now? Jesus becomes central. He is my royalty. He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And again over in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35, the pastor says, therefore do not throw away your confidence which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Do you get that? The point of your endurance in this life is to receive what he promised for the kingdom. That's what it's about. And he says, in a very, yet a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. For what? For the kingdom. For the kingdom. Let's stand up together. Numbers 29, verse 39 concludes. While you're standing, just listen to this. You shall present these to the Lord at your moedim, at your appointed times, besides your votive offerings and your freewill offerings, for your burnt offerings and your grain offerings and your drink offerings and for your peace offerings. That is, for all of these offerings, Day to week to month to year, you can also offer more. The Lord says, You can bring your peace offering anytime you want. You can bring other offerings. You can be even more devoted to Jesus. And Moses spoke all these things to the sons of Israel in accordance with all the Lord had commanded Moses. This is Israelite daily life. It was to be the centrality of God, the constancy of sacrifice. And it strikes me in reading through these things that God's not really asking for too much, just their entire lives. <laughs> now again, it was an awful lot to sacrifice if we add that up, the morning, evening, weekly, monthly, annual, over 1,400 years, massive amounts of blood, expense that was huge, nearly incalculable, and I tell you again as we conclude, and it was not enough. It simply was not enough until the Lamb of God was drained of that precious blood once for all to satisfy the eternal cost of sin. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired. But a body, Jesus says, you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. And after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them. Then he said, 
Behold, I have come to do your will. Jesus takes away the first in order to establish the second. And by this will, the offering of the body, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And all God asks of you, all that he asks of me, is to make Jesus Christ central in our lives. Is that too much to ask? Father, it's not too much to ask. What we have gone over this morning is our entire reason for being. The entire purpose of our creation, of our existence, is to be centered on the Son, on you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I... My struggle with this is, as I said earlier, I am so distractible. Just on my own. And then, and, then, and then there are friends and family and things going on in life that attract my attention. And then there's the enemy trying to keep me detoured. I thank you for moments like these. Because in moments like these, we pause and, and we return and we recenter and we refocus on you, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that this will carry us, that our mornings and our evenings will be joyful times of devotion to you. I pray, Father, carry us through, but just get us to Wednesday and then bring us together again for fellowship and, and love and worship. Father, carry us through one week to the next that we might find our rest in you and on a monthly basis remind us of you and Lord, annually remind us just, oh Holy Spirit, stay after us. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has gone, to his, his, gone unto his own way. We need you and we invite you and ask you again to be central to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.